The, the, the last words of the, of the discourse are just sitting with me, dwelling forever in peace. Um, John and I are so happy that you've joined us for this 10-week exploration into this discourse on these eight realizations of great beings. And we, we, as we talked about how to approach this, and, and for those of you who've practiced with us before, you know that when, when an I, John and I are, are uh, uh, giving talks on a particular subject, we really give ourselves to that, uh, whatever that subject matter is. And this has been no different uh, from that. And so we've actually spent much of the last four months uh, giving ourselves to, to meditation and study and discussion with one another. Um, and so we thought it would be uh, important for you to hear some, some things about the origins of this discourse and why Tai why Thich Nhat Hanh considers it a foundational teaching for every student of the Dharma. Um, I, I uh, owe a lot to uh, uh, one of the monastics, uh, uh, Tef Hap Hai, uh, who is, uh, was for many years a monastic at Plum Village and then at, at, uh, at Deer Park. And um, he has given a great deal of time to the study of this, this uh, particular discourse. And he says that, um, that Thich Nhat Hanh really emphasized it with the monastics. And and uh, and Fepai actually wasn't wasn't that he they thought of this discourse as a kind of laundry list, uh, is how he described it, um, and it wasn't until he really gave himself to the study with Thai, that that he really began to let it unfold and open to him, um, uh, and so he's been a great source of information for me, and he's written a book that hasn't been published yet. Uh, Hopefully, we'll all be able to get it soon, and uh, and deepen our study into the into this uh, discourse. So, so for those of you who don't know this, Tay translated this discourse originally for the boat people in the mid '70s, the refugees of the Vietnam War, uh, who were escaping after the end of the war in in Vietnam after the fall of Saigon. Uh, in 1975, and so many uh, people in the South were escaping. They were uh, leaving Vietnam in rickety, mostly unseaworthy boats um, with, with far more people on each boat than each should have. And they were beset by pirates, and they were beset by uh, people trying to stop them and countries refusing their entry. And so uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, um, uh, wrote this, uh, translated this uh, discourse from the Chinese uh, in, in order to, to give, give the boat people, give his fellow countrymen a clear and concise and accessible, simple approach to studying and being with the Dharma. He, gave, he wanted them to have this discourse to accompany them, to help them take refuge during their perilous journey to freedom 
And isn't this discourse exactly what that describes? <laughs> Our perilous journey to freedom. Um, so uh, the discourse comes to us uh, um, in its current form uh, when it was, it was translated into Chinese in the middle of the second century of the Common Era. So uh, middle of the second century, about 150 CE, AD, um, the, the, is where we first see the sutra translated into Chinese. Um, now, uh, many of us are aware that there, there have been essentially uh, two transmissions. When we think of the transmissions of, of Buddhism, uh, there were two transmissions. One was a, a southern transmission uh, of, of the uh, Buddha Dharma to, through southern India, across to Sri Lanka, up through Indonesia, and then to um, Burma, and what we consider today Indochina, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. And there was also a northern transmission and that northern transmission, we always hear, well, the Dharma went north to China, then to um, Korea and uh, Japan, and then again down to Vietnam. But, but we don't really hear much about how that actually happened. So how, how did Buddhism get from India to China? You know, the southern route is pretty open. The northern route is across the Himalaya. Um, so how did that happen? So I want to actually show you uh, a slide, but first I'll just tell you, so the way that happened is the Silk Road. And uh, how many of you remember hearing about the Silk Road in school? And so when, when I first uh, started studying the sutra, what I remembered about the Silk Road was Marco Polo bringing pasta from China, right? Um, and so this, this uh, is uh, uh, just this wonderful story about the, 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 the impact of the Silk Road on our practice, on the transmission of Buddhism. Um, the Silk Road was, and I'll, I'll put up the, share the screen. Just want to check. Is everybody seeing that? Okay. Um, so the Silk Road was an ancient trade route that linked the Western world with the Middle East and Asia. So it linked the, the China and then the Middle East, India, and, uh, and, and then Europe. Uh, it was a major conduit for trade between the Roman Empire and China and then later between medieval European kingdoms and China. And that's where Marco Polo comes in in the 13th century. So this area here is the Tigris and Euphrates Valley. And this is what we, uh, is, my, is my cursor showing up there too as well? Okay, great. Um, this is what we think of and speak of as the, the cradle of civilization. So notice that not only was there this overland route that was the Silk Road, but there was also a, a, a sea route as well, and more than one. Uh, so it was land and sea. And the Silk Road was 
it was already an ancient network of trade routes when it became more formally established during the Han Dynasty of China. And that's what started in about two, two centuries before the Common Era. So the, this was an ancient, all of this, even though it became more formalized during the Han Dynasty and the Roman Empire, it's ancient trade routes that brought east to west, west to east. So it linked the Roman Empire and Asia for silk trade as well as for other commodities. And the Silk Road not only promoted commodity exchange, but also cultural exchange as well. And in fact, the Silk Road generated the earliest forms of globalization because it aided in the exchange of cultures, goods, and ideas. And it, it stimulated intercontinental transmission of thought, philosophy, and religion. So Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, they all intermingled here along the Silk Road. And hundreds of years of trade and invasion brought Buddhist monks into contact with merchants and nomadic people in Central Asia, in Afghanistan, in, that's here, in Pakistan, uh, um, in India. And together with these merchant caravans, Buddhist monks went all over the Middle East, Central Asia, and China teaching this new practice, teaching this new approach to living. And we don't think of Buddhism taking root in what we now consider the Middle East. Like, we don't really hear about that at all, ever. But that's actually what happened. It did by the first century of the Common Era. That is, by the first century CE, Buddhist monasteries sprang up all along the Silk Road, not just in one area, but all along the Silk Road. In fact, at one time, there were nearly 40 Buddhist monasteries near what is now Kabul and, and central Afghanistan, the capital of Afghanistan. There were 40 Buddhist monasteries. How, how many of you remember the Bamiyan sculptures? A few years ago, there were, were sculptures that were in Afghanistan that uh, 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 Islamic peoples uh, decided to destroy these uh, sculptures of, of the Buddha. Um, and that was, that was there in Afghanistan. But it was there where there were many, many monasteries, uh, Buddhist monasteries. So there were hundreds of Buddhist monasteries along the Silk Road. And there are 37 well-known monastics and translators who were born along the Silk Road. They were instrumental either as missionaries taking Buddhism to China, or they were known for translating Buddhist texts into Chinese. And the earliest known translator, the earliest known one, the one that we have a record of, his name was An Shigao. An Shigao, it's spelled like A-N-S-H-I-G-A-O. An Shigao, or in Vietnam, An Tegao. And he grew up in Parthia. And where Parthia is, is right here in the heart of the Tigris and Euphrates area. So in what was also part, partly Persia, uh, we came Persia at one time. So he, the, the country he was from was Parthia. And he was a Parthian prince. And there's some lore about him that he, like the Buddha, was a 
Parthian prince who, who uh, just, you know, was introduced to Buddhism and became Buddhist and began to practice. And, and uh, he, he was very instrumental in, in, well, he was the person who, who translated the discourse on the eight realizations uh, into Chinese for the Chinese. And in fact, he left his home and kingdom and, and re, uh, settled in Western, Western China and established uh, a number of Buddhist training centers there. So he was the first of a wave of Silk Road Buddhist teachers who collectively brought Buddhism to China uh, in the second through the fifth century. So, so what? Why do we care about it? You can tell I'm, I love this stuff. Margo's smiling, Margo loves this stuff too, I know. <laughs> we love the history. So it's important to understand the deep roots of, of Buddhist philosophy and practice on influencing Western civilization and culture. And we know that what happened here by the seventh and eighth century as Islam was rising, that Islam really became the predominant religion in the area. Uh, but Buddhism had been very significant in, in this area. Uh, so uh, like, like uh, uh, Fap Hai, I love telling the story about how this discourse came about and how this, uh, uh, we have come to benefit um, as Westerners because there were people all along the Silk Road that took the time to, to translate the Dharma and the teachings into other languages. So, uh, I'm sorry, we can stop this here on that. So, um, uh, let's now jump into the discourse. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh writes that this discourse is completely in keeping with the teachings given by the historical Buddha, though it is considered a Mahayana teaching. Um, most sutras start, the sutras that we're familiar with. Thus have I heard, when the Buddha was staying one time in this monastery or that monastery in the Jedagrove or here or there, thus have I heard. Well, this discourse starts, disciples of the awakened one should recite and meditate on the eight realizations discovered by the great beings. All, it actually says all disciples of the awakened one. That's all. Past, present, future. This discourse is a love letter to you. All beings by nature are Buddha. And awakening is our birthright. So when Thich Nhat Hanh chose this for the boat people, what was he giving them? He was giving them a clear, concise, and, and relatively easy to remember elucidation of the whole of the Dharma. The discourse on the eight realizations was, was significantly important to Tay because it clarifies insights that arise on the path of awakening. And these insights offer us signposts and guidelines to help us recognize and take refuge in our own goodness, our own intrinsic Buddha nature. 
So to comprise eight concise, as I said, relatively easy to remember points of guidance from our practice. And I would tell you, having studied this now four months, this course, this discourse, these eight realizations encompass the whole of the Dharma. There is nothing left out. They offer us objects of practice that are both contemplative and practicable. That is, they are fit for meditation in and of themselves, fit for meditation just as they are, as well as being practical guidelines for how we can apply them in our daily life. Their focus is simplicity, generosity, compassion, all core teachings of Buddha Dharma are contained in the messages of this discourse. Interbeing is at the heart of each realization. The three marks of existence are here. Impermanence, non-self, nirvana. Nirvana being the falling away of views. The three marks of existence are right here. All four, all four of the noble truths are right here. That the eight realizations expose the root causes of our suffering. Greed, hatred, ignorance, and importantly, they give us the antidote you know, the, the Noble Eightfold Path, it's all right here. The path leading from sansara, the painful cycle of birth and death, to liberation, to freedom, it's all right here. Right view, right intention, right speech, right conduct, right livelihood, right effort, definitely, right mindfulness, and right samadhi, right meditative absorption. It's all right here in this simple discourse. John and I um, had the good fortune about uh, 10 or 15 years ago to study this discourse on a week-long retreat with our teacher, Eileen. And she invited us to memorize the discourse during, during our seven-day retreat. And I know that, that John and I both had committed it to memory at the time. And uh, I know that over, over time I've lost some of that. And I'm not going to invite you to, to, well, maybe I will invite you if you want to. Memorize it. Anybody who's willing to memorize it, I'll, I'll re-memorize it and start again. But I thought what I would do is that I would give you a simple list. A simple list of these eight realizations that are one word, two, three, four, five words. 
It's a simple list that summarizes the eight realizations in. And tonight, after I finish and John finishes, I'll put them in the chat and you can copy and paste them. And I encourage you um, to, to memorize, at least memorize this list in, in this format. So I'm, I, you're, you're not going to unmute yourselves at the moment, but you are going to repeat after me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say each one once, and then I'd like you to just say it with me. So just you can just close your eyes right now and just listen, listen as I say each one. So I'll say it when the first realization is impermanence. So now say it with me. The first realization is impermanence. The second realization, more desire brings more suffering. Repeat it with me. More desire brings more suffering. The third realization, the mind endlessly searches outside itself and therefore never feels fulfilled. The third realization, the mind endlessly searches outside itself and therefore never feels fulfilled. The fourth realization, I'm translating the word indolence. So the fourth realization is, laziness is an obstacle to practice. Repeat it with me. Laziness is an obstacle to practice. The fifth realization. Ignorance is the cause of the endless round of birth and death. The fifth realization is, ignorance is the cause of the endless round of birth and death. The sixth realization, poverty creates anger and hatred. The sixth realization is poverty creates anger and hatred. The seventh, getting caught by sensual desire leads to problems. The seventh is getting caught by sensual desire leads to problems. And the eighth, a powerful one, the fire of birth and death is raging, causing endless suffering. The eighth is the fire of birth and death is raging, causing endless suffering. So I think in this simple form, whether we, whether you join me in memorizing the whole discourse, or that we just commit ourselves to be to remembering these eight simple phrases that point us right back, um, we can commit these to memory, and then we can use them to touch our inherent birthright of awakening. These eight realizations reorient our point of reference. Who are the great beings that we're talking about? 
we are, my friends. We who contemplate and practice these realizations are the great beings. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. So Mike talked about broad, broad strokes, about the Silk Road, about moving across continents, about cultures coming together. And I'm going to talk about one word, one word. But first, I want to say just a few words about what is a practice period? Why are we doing this? So a practice period is a recognition that all things exist in cycles. There's day and night. There's summer and winter. There's spring and fall, growth and decay. So practice also has cycles. And the cycles of practice are intensity followed by rest. And a practice period is a time of intensity. You know, in practice, we have retreats that are followed by lazy days. That's the cycle. And we have insights that are followed by integration of the insights. That's the cycle. So we're going to dive in really deeply on this 10-week period. And we're going to make this an intense study period. And we're going to focus our hearts and our minds so that insight has the possibility of arising. And that's the function of a practice period. Now, another question I want to touch before I go into my one word is why would we study a sutra during our practice period? Well, the reason is a sutra is a mirror for our own wisdom. It's a mirror for our own wisdom. Now, a sutra is not a textbook. It's not a description of something out there. It's a mirror in which we see our own goodness reflected back to us. It reminds us very often, yes, that's what I know. That's what I know. So those are the two things I wanted to say before I talk about one word. And that word is wholeheartedly. It's the very first word of the sutra wholeheartedly. The first paragraph of the sutra, as Mike said, and we read earlier, wholeheartedly, day and night, disciples of the awakened one should recite and meditate on the eight realizations discovered by the great beings. Wholeheartedly. What does it mean to do something wholeheartedly? Well, what I'd like to suggest is that wholeheartedly means that we offer ourselves to the sutra. And we offer our minds, our hearts, and our bodies. What do I mean by that? So offering the sutra our mind means using our intelligence. We're offering the sutra our intelligence with our mind. 
So as Mike said, one of the ways we can do that is we memorize it. We learn the words as they are. And as Mike said, again, we, we highly recommend you, you do that. It was very helpful to us, and it's still there for me. And what I discovered when I memorize sutras in this way is that in the moments when I need the wisdom to come forth, it's there. It's available. If I haven't memorized it, I might miss out on it. So, that, you know, I, I notice a phrase or a word from a sutra will bubble up when I'm most uncertain. I've received the help of it, but only if I offer it my mind. So another way to offer it your mind is to summarize it, just like Mike did. Put it into your own words. Make its essence your own by voicing it in the way you would make it, you would see it most clearly and quickly so we could summarize it. So we memorize it, we summarize it. And then the third way we use our mind is to understand it with our intelligence. So Mike gave you lots of background to help you understand where this came from. This sutra wasn't something from some strange land. No, it was from the very cradle of civilization that we all come back to. We understand that it's us. So Mike and I have made an effort to understand it these last few months. We've lived with the sutra. We've used our minds to make it alive for us. So to offer our mind the sutra, we memorize, we summarize, we understand. But that's not enough. If we're really going to be wholehearted, we can't just offer our mind. We have to also offer our heart. And offering the sutra our heart means feeling the sutra. Feeling it. To feel it, we watch what arises in us as we study and contemplate the sutra. We notice, which words am I resisting? When I resist something in a sutra, I pay attention to that because my resistance might indicate where I'm stuck, where I'm caught, and therefore where I'm suffering. Also, I can, I can offer my heart to the sutra by noticing which words feel immediately true. Ah. When I feel, oh, yeah, that is it. I know this. Well, that is a recognition of my own wisdom. That's the looking into the mirror aspect of a sutra. So we offer the sutra our heart by being willing to feel what comes up as we study. Both resistance and immediate joy and acceptance. We feel them both. But just offering our mind and our heart isn't quite enough. We have one more aspect of ourselves that we need to offer to the sutra, and that is our body. So offering the sutra our body means diving all in without reservation. 
all in. And what I mean by diving all in is that I am willing to experience the bodily sensations that the sutra brings forward. You know, and I trust my bodily sensations more than my mind. My body speaks the truth to me if I'm willing to pay attention to it. So when I offer the sutra my body, I'm asking myself, can I feel vulnerable and undefended? Can I experience that, the sensations of feeling vulnerable in my body? Am I willing to feel the cons my constrictions and my judgments come up and really experience it? To not push it away? Can I bodily experience these chronic self-protective tendencies that I have? And I imagine that you do too. You know, I protect myself by turning away. Oh, no, not, not that. Or ignoring it. Or, or another one is I rush past that uncomfortable feeling in my body of not knowing. I, I read these words and I think, uh, 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 that makes no, uh, uh, you know, and I want to rush right by that. But if we're willing to offer our body to the sutra, something really important and helpful happens. Our body becomes a diagnostic tool. We can feel into our stuck places and we can feel into our freedom. We know where we are on the path. Our body's a diagnostic tool. So another way to say, offer my whole self, my mind, my heart, and my body to the sutra, might be to say, um, we don't just study the sutra, the sutra studies us. We don't just study the sutra, the sutra studies us. And we have to assent to the sutra studying us for that to happen. We have to say yes. Mike and I, 20 years ago or so, said yes to the 14 mindfulness trainings studying us. And over that time, the mindfulness trainings have been showing us where we're caught and showing us where we're free. It shows us our, our wisdom as it emerges. So it's been a beautiful, beautiful thing to do, to sit together and recite those mindfulness trainings, which is just like reciting a sutra, by giving our whole self to it and using our bodies as this diagnostic tool and letting the sutra study us. So wholeheartedness is a method we use to engage with the sutra. But wholeheartedness is also the result of engaging with the sutra. Wholeheartedness is both a method and a result. The method is that we bring our whole selves to the sutra. We offer our minds and our hearts and our bodies to it. But the result is that 
we're rewarded with wholeness. It transforms us. Offering ourselves wholly to the sutra shows us our whole self. It's really magical. Interbeing, right there. Interbeing. We offer wholeness, we are wholeness. When we do that, our whole self sees with the sutra's insights. You know, as we study the sutra, what seems like the realizations of great beings throughout history, you will begin to recognize as your own insights. These eight realizations are an expression of your own goodness, your own wisdom, your own beauty. And as Mike said, the more you offer yourself to this sutra wholeheartedly, the more that you'll see you are already one of the great beings. This is not a textbook about someone else somewhere else. This is a description of you right now as you are. Wholeheartedly, day and night, disciples of the Awakened One should recite and meditate on the eight realizations discovered by the great beings. Thank you all. <laughs>